Hunters use all kinds of tools, from spears and nets to arrows, blow darts, spring traps, rifles. But Cassandra Quave is a hunter of plants. The local ranchers that had allowed us onto that land to collect our plants had already warned us about a very large alligator that's known to be kind of in that region. I have this gun with me, a 357 Magnum with hollow points, hopefully always with the intent to never actually have to use it. I mean, I grew up in this swamp and I learned from a very young age how to safely and properly handle firearms. Just so the audience doesn't think I'm going into the swamp just like, you know, pew, pew, pew. That's not the point of having a defensive weapon. It's a safety precaution. If you're under attack, that's certainly within your rights to defend yourself or whoever you're taking care of. And you have to get them in the head. They have a very small brain. You have to be a pretty good marksman. Cassandra Quave carries her handgun just in case while conducting plant research in Florida swamps, among other places. She's a gutsy woman. And I really ought to mention here, she's already missing a leg, but no, not the way you might think, given what you've heard so far. The absence of a limb does complicate things for her as she sloshes around in wetlands. She finds it doable because of a custom-made hip boot designed to accommodate her prosthetic leg. I had some special boots that I wore while we're going into the water. And so one of the challenges with my prosthetic leg is just getting high waiter boots onto the foot because the foot doesn't bend. But my husband actually constructed a kind of special zipper into the back of the boot that allows me to get in there. So I was definitely up in the swamp. (laughs) Mosquitoes alone, not just alligators, would dissuade me from doing what she does as a researcher in the field. And what exactly is she looking for? Well, sometimes she's looking for a native blackberry bush that might contain compounds to fight antibiotic-resistant bacteria. We'll return to the blackberry plant later in the conversation, but first, I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Our guest is a one-legged but fully armed, double meaning there, alligator-defying, swamp-stomping plant hunter. She's a dermatology professor at the Emory School of Medicine in Atlanta, one of the nation's most prestigious med schools. She's also an ethnobotanist. Think scientist who studies old and new ways to access plant power for all sorts of human needs. Cassandra Quave's new memoir is titled The Plant Hunter, A Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicines. Ethnobotany derives from ethno for the study of culture and people, and botany the study of plants. So it's really the scientific study of the relationships that people have with plants. It's also been defined as a science of survival because it's our human ability to interact with so many very different species and so many different habitats that allows us to live in basically every biome on the planet. It's just incredible that humans over time have sorted out in all these different biomes, within all these different ecosystems, which plants are safe to eat, which ones you can use as firewood, which ones are good for building um, a home, which ones are good for creating tools for hunting or fishing, for medicine, for musical instruments. So it's all of that knowledge that's been generated over time. And that knowledge is very dynamic. It changes over generations. And so ethnobotanists are concerned with documenting knowledge and documenting which species um, through the collection of plant specimens um, to ensure that we have a good understanding of how these plants are being used across the globe. Her specific work as a hunter and collector of plants, well, that's often focused on our need to combat antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Of course, fighting infection, that's hardly a new thing for the human race. Dealing with superbugs, well, that's a new and a different and a complicated story. The way we've treated infection has varied through history and from one location to the next across numerous cultures. And local plants have long been the primary or sometimes even exclusive source of any kind of medicine. Meanwhile, as Cassandra Quave does her work, she's all too aware that these superbugs may represent the next major scourge to be unleashed on the human race. The more I've learned about Cassandra, the more convinced I am that she's an exceptional role model, a bold adventurer 
a scientist on an exciting intellectual path. She loves what she does. She's undeterred by physical challenges. But her reasons for her chosen profession as a plant hunter, well, these go far beyond mere scholarly curiosity. She delves into swamps in no small part because she has been deep into medical danger in her own life story. And for all the time that she spent in hospitals, she's also made countless forays out and about the globe, from Florida to Peru, from Italy to the Balkans, on a quest that I think can only be seen as a direct consequence of her recurring physical challenges related to that missing leg. You see, early in her life as an amputee, she returned to the hospital like a yo-yo, fighting infection after infection, and she's also had to deal with infections as an adult. Without antibiotics, she wouldn't be alive today and may have died long ago. One of her most vivid early memories, she's a three-year-old being placed into what she and her little three-year-old brain could only imagine to be a vat filled with blood. I was born with a number of congenital birth defects, and as a result of those birth defects, I was missing bones in my leg. Some bones were short, and so at the age of three, I had to have my leg amputated. Now, unfortunately, I developed a life-threatening staph infection in the hospital. was sent home. They didn't know I had the infection. My mom discovered it days later, rushed me back to the hospital. And that blood that you're referencing was a, a kind of like a betadine bath. So that red betadine solution that you may be familiar with from your medicine cabinet. It's an antiseptic. And my infection was so, let's say, so advanced. It had destroyed a lot of the tissues around my bone and my bone was exposed. And so part of the therapy was not only receiving lots of antibiotics while I was in the hospital, but also going through this whirlpool treatment and these betadine baths. And to a three-year-old me, it was very much, they were throwing me into a literal bloodbath and I was not having it. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about this leg. You say the entire leg amputated. No, it's below the knee. It's below the knee. So initially, I had a lot more tibia left, that lower front bone on your leg. Um, I was born without a fibula on the right side. And my femur, my thigh bone, was very short. But following that infection, because the infection got into the bone and I had lost a lot of tissue where they had sewn up the you know, post-amputation, I have a very, very short stump. I'm like at the bare minimum to where I was able to keep my knee. You know, I, I fortunately was able to keep the knee, so I have a little bit better mobility because of that. But because there's just scar tissue below the bone, I'm not able to run about on one of those Blade Runner kind of legs, you know, that I get questioned about a lot. Um, and for any of the listeners that, you know, are curious about those types of legs, you know, there's this, I think there's sometimes this misunderstanding that if you're an amputee, you have to be a super athlete. <laughs> I'm not a super athlete. <laughs> I've never run a marathon. I don't Fair ever enough. intend to. <laughs> I use the prosthetic legs that I have help me get out into the field for my field work and my day-to-day -day work. But yeah. Um, out into the swamps too, not just the field. I mean, you swamps, say the field. Yeah. But. yeah. So I definitely w wear through prosthetics pretty quickly, but I'm not like entering any races. <laughs> and there was a time when you took all of your old legs out of the garage and lined them up to kind of review your past? Yeah, I have a box of old legs in my garage. Um, and so some of them are not in great shape because they lived for a while in, you know, my parents' barn and got nibbled on by rodents. So some toes are missing, things like that. But it's an interesting walk through through my life because you can see the evolution of the technology, especially post-Vietnam when we had so many veterans return with limb loss there was more and more investment in developing prosthetics. And so when I was very young, my prosthetic legs were very heavy, very um, uncomfortable. They rubbed on the skin. I was prone to getting lots of different skin infections as a kid just because of the friction and kind of the, the sweat and that constant kind of rubbing in those sites. And so um, that's something I've, I've battled throughout my childhood. But as I got older, they started to emerge with new technologies that have these kind of silicone liners that are less apt to cause those types of irritations and infections. So the technology is constantly changing, and it's really cool to see that change over, over time through those legs. When you lined them all up and were looking at them, you could, you could just right there say, man, that's antiquated. That's, that's medieval. I, yeah. I'm not trying to say your age or anything, but you, it was old and clunky, <laughs> the first one you had. 
They were old, they're clunky, they have lots of straps, so the soreness wouldn't just come from the stump, but also those very tight kind of belts and straps that you used to have to wear to keep them on. Today, I have this like high-tech secret button, you know, and a lock pin mechanism that clicks in and out, so it's just so much better. But I mean, as a kid, it wasn't uncommon for me to lose the leg. Like it would fly off because I was an active kid. I wasn't like an athlete, but I, you know, was climbing trees and riding horses. And well, I can imagine that would be mortifying if you were in the wrong crowd of kids. I I always found it to be funny. <laughs> it was maybe scary for them, but I thought it was a great joke. <laughs> so it speaks to my sense of humor. <laughs> well, who was the kid in the, on the playground, Billy? Oh, um, Billy was my my great tormentor in elementary school. So Billy wouldn't make fun of me for my leg. It was my cane because I'd had to have my femur lengthened and I had to walk around with this old granny style cane. And it was awful. It was gray, medical grade, kind of, you know, literally like a granny's cane. And, you know, every day at recess, he would taunt me and say, here comes granny with her cane. And it just, you know, um, I I describe a scene in the book. I won't give it away. You have got to read Billy Fill Off the Swing to (laughs) to get to that. But, you know, yes, there were definitely times when it was really hard. And there were many nights where I was crying at home. I mean, maybe I should rephrase it where there were times with my friends, with my close friends, when it would fly off and we'd think it's a hoot um, and we would kind of terrorize strangers. (laughs) But (laughs) there are also times that were really hard. Okay, this stage from elementary school into middle school, during those years you're doing science fairs, it seems to me what happens here is a child who feels marginalized, who feels different, who feels maybe not wanted, who's often taunted and teased, you're looking for some kind of self-respect and you get to do science fair. I know. And it really, it really was that for me. I mean, science fair was my portal into a whole other world. It was, it was also the way I kind of connected with kids outside of my hometown because there were regional competitions and then state competitions and then eventually international competitions where I met other students that shared that passion for science and for experimentation and, and learning and curiosity that I didn't always have in my local school. Were you actually, at that time period in the science fairs, were you actually using Petri dishes and you had access to things like E. coli? I mean, I, I think about E. coli, salmonella, I think about any of these things, and <laughs> I think, well, you don't know, give that I, to kids. Well, you know, I got the E. coli out of ground beef. Um, I don't know if the audience remembers this at this time. This is in the... Oh, gosh. In the late 1980s, early 1990s, there were a number of outbreaks of serious foodborne illness where I saw this on the news, the nightly news at home, and family would go to a a burger joint, drive through burger joint, and get sick for the food poisoning. You know, but then the the youngest one dies because of these very aggressive toxin-producing forms of E. coli. And the town that I grew up in is very much a beef cattle town. Most people don't realize this, but one of Florida's biggest exports is not oranges, it's cattle that get exported out west um, where they go to feedlots, but they initially are reared in Florida um, in many cases. Our whole economy, everywhere I look, there are beef cattle. And so this idea that you could die from eating a hamburger was just like wild to me. And that's how I kind of got into those first questions around how old were you at this time? How many bacteria? Um, I was in middle school. That would have been sixth or seventh grade. So maybe uh, 11 or 12, something like that. So you went to grocery stores or whatnot and you you yeah. purchased some hamburger? Purchased the hamburger meat at different grocery stores and then at our local butcher and just did a simple experiment to grind it up and add it in a liquid. And you basically put it out on growth media and count how many colonies or how heavy of a load of E. coli is present in each of those samples. And the local butcher was the cleanest source of meat. So that was kind of neat. So you're actually quantifying the presence uh, sort of uh, between different brands. Yeah. I mean, this is not going to make the purveyors of meat very happy if they get, uh, if word gets out that the local butcher's the, the guy to go to, but then maybe the, what, the national chain's not yeah. so much. Well, I mean, what are they going to do? Go after a sixth grader in science fair? <laughs> I mean, it's like, oh, they've done worse. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's um, just those kind of questions, though, really got me interested in, you know, any coli as, as a cause of disease. And later... I got more and more interested in in drug resistance because drug resistance is also an issue with E. coli and and other bacteria. And right now we're facing a lot of antibiotic resistance um, globally. 
Yeah. So it's interesting because in a way I never really stopped doing science fairs. It kind of, that's where I started and where I've continued to, to tinker with bacteria and, and try to understand both how they cause disease, but also what kinds of therapeutic actions we can take to stop that kind of disease pathway. You realize, don't you, that very few people have such bedrock in their in their uh, intellectual focus from such an early age. I mean, it's been bacteria, and you were looking at paramecium, uh, you were looking at the amoebas, you've been looking, and, and this goes back to childhood, and, and you're still at it. Yeah, yeah. I guess I found my thing early on, although I didn't know I'd found my thing. It's I feel like I, I kind of took a very zigzag path to get to where I'm at. I never, I never really learned about anthropology even in high school. It wasn't until I went to college that I started to really see that there are other systems of knowing and other systems of wisdom and systems of medicine. A lot of that kind of was founded in a curiosity for nature, but then I was able to build on that as, as my education progressed. In finding her thing, Cassandra Quave seems to have stumbled very early on in life on a personal mission. Now, this focus she has is simultaneously very specific, but also broad and general, because it's at the intersection of multiple concerns. A concern for infections, a concern about dangerous bacteria like E. coli and hamburger, or the superbug called MRSA, a curiosity about medical science, and a fascination, as you'll soon hear, for the healing arts as taught for centuries in traditional cultures. Just moments ago, she mentioned anthropology, which brings us to ethnobotany and her research travels as a plant hunter, searching for therapeutic botanical materials, wherever they are, from Peru to Italy to the swamps of Florida. And wherever it leads, Cassandra Quave follows the story of our cells and our wounds and our bodies fight against infection and why plants might make a big difference. But before I get too far ahead of things, while she was still a youth, not long after getting involved in science fairs, she started volunteering at the local hospital. That was a place she knew all too well because of her frequent stays there. That was like my fun Friday night <laughs> was to be to be at the hospital. I I have a very long and kind of strange relationship with medicine because I had one to two surgeries every year since like I was a baby. You know, in the ER, I felt like I could make connections with people. I had a real sense of empathy for what they were going through. And I also had this extreme thirst for knowledge. I wanted to understand more about how the body worked and how illnesses were treated, how they're diagnosed. You know, in retrospect, it seems a little odd that I would spend so much time in the ER as a kid, but at the time it was completely normal and it's what really made me happy and really, I think, informed a lot of the later choices I made in life in the trajectory for my career. That trajectory would include becoming knowledgeable in ethnobotany. And here's how that unfolded during her college years. She's an undergrad. She has her sights set on med school. It seems just right for somebody who, as an adolescent, had shadowed doctors and nurses around in the ER, seeing things that most kids are shielded from. Well, she's wrapping up her undergraduate studies in biology and anthropology at Emory University, and somehow she manages to spring loose from that first-world environment. She goes on a grand adventure to Peruvian Amazonia. This is where she's going to discover a world of plants and plant medicine that would consume her imagination. She finds a mentor in Peru, a local healer. He's an expert named Don Antonio. This is the same fellow, by the way, who had a key role in building a, a very famous tree canopy walkway. You can go there as a tourist or just check it out on YouTube. You go up high, you walk on these planks to see what the jungle looks like from 100 feet up, all the diverse life forms that live several stories up. Anyway, back to the internship. She's with native medicine man Don Antonio, and that experience learning from him is going to redirect, if not totally upend, her life plans. I was 21 when I took my first trip to the Amazon, and during that time I was kind of in, in a similar vein to the work that I did with, with physicians in the emergency room in my hometown, I kind of took that same sort of perspective of shadowing and working with a local healer with um, Don Antonio, who is a Aguascaro um, Corandero. And he treated people in the area for lots of different conditions using plants as a form of medicine. 
But my role in that initial trip was to kind of be a volunteer at the research station and to help Don Antonio in the garden. And that's how our relationship started, was me being there to help him. And then also he allowed me to to shadow him and watch how he treated patients, how he prepared medicines and things like that. And, you know, Don Antonio was a prankster. He had a great sense of humor. There's um, one scene in the book that I describe where he is showing me this plant. And in my mind, I am just, you know, so thrilled. I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be some groundbreaking thing I'm about to learn. I'm scribbling down notes like mad, trying to take down every possible detail. And, you know, he's like, okay, I'll be right back. And he comes back with this mirror and he starts smearing this thing on my mouth. And I'm like, oh my gosh, is this a treatment for cold sores? Like, what is this amazing thing he's about to share with me? And then he holds up a mirror and I look like an absolute clown. I have this red stuff all over my lips, all over my teeth. It's just like smeared everywhere. And then he just jump, he just drops over in a belly laugh. He's like lipstick. He says it in English too. He says lipstick <laughs> and starts laughing. And we just started laughing together. And in a way that was like, I think an icebreaker that we needed because I was so serious about this. He, it was his way of saying, you know what? You can lighten up a little. Like we're going to learn some things. <laughs> like, lighten up. There's a lot to come, um, but we can also have fun. <laughs> I, I'm glad you were able to lighten up. And that said, you had some very serious times down there, including uh, uh, going too far on your prosthetic device and becoming getting an infection again. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's I mean, one of all those places, things. you're in the Amazon, and that to me sounds like bugs, dangerous pathogens. Yes. Um, it's one of those things that I pre- could have easily predicted was going to happen based on just my childhood experiences of getting these regularly, these kind of sores and infections that would emerge after you know, using my prosthetic really heavily, um, especially in kind of the heat, um, kind of hot tropical humid places is where it will happen. Um, and, and how this far was, from a hospital maybe? Oh yeah. I mean, it been a couple of days by riverboat or, you know, faster by speedboat, but the most transportation was, it would have been a couple of days. And so it was kind of isolated. This is before I really knew Don Antonio very well. And I was still very much clinging to like Western medical therapies. And so I had had the foresight to bring along, you know, a medical kit with me. I had overpacked luggage with lots of different medical supplies. So I treated myself, but it was just maddening because here I was finally at this place I'd dreamt of in the midst of this beautiful rainforest and all around me, there's so much to see and so much to explore. And I was grounded. I was basically stuck um, because I didn't have crutches with me. I had no secondary means of getting around. There was no wheelchair. I had no backup option other than just kind of being in my, in my room on my cot. And that was really hard. And it was a, it was a good lesson for me. I think that I've had to take to heart in later expeditions. Like I'm, Now I've led many expeditions with large teams of 10, 12 people or more in very rugged, difficult to reach places in some cases. And so now I I really put a lot of time and effort into planning for contingencies, for making sure that wherever we're at, that there are alternatives in place or alternative ways to get to the places I need to reach. Um, Because the reality is I just can't, I'm not, like I said, I'm not a marathon runner. Um, climbing a mountain to get a plant isn't always possible for me. So I have to think about other ways. How do I get up there? And sometimes it's by donkey. (laughs) Or in the Amazon, it was by canoe. (laughs) Don't be fooled here. She's not hampered much at all in getting to the places she wants to go. For her, a donkey is just a canoe with legs on dry land. Okay, that's not quite true. But my point is, she gets where she needs to go for her research. And sometimes that place is in the remotest parts of a jungle. On one of her forays into the Amazon, she ended up proud owner of a blowgun that had just returned from a hunting trip in the hands of a native hunter. I also got very interested in visiting different communities, including communities that are a bit more off the beaten path, deeper into the tributaries, where you still had local people that spoke some of the native languages that were not so westernized yet. And it was in one of those villages where I met a Yagua elder who was using the blowgun to hunt with. And it was just a really special moment, and he, he gifted it to me. And so I have it today in my office. So was it just an artifact that he handed to you, or did you actually get to see that implement in use? 
So when I was there in that village visiting and meeting with some of the the women in this kind of palm thatch stilted hut, so they're up off the ground because of the seasonal flooding, we were talking about local plants and talking about traditions with medicine. And one of their husbands had come back from the forest with his catch for the for the evening um, to cook. And it was a, a large monkey that had a little baby monkey kind of clinging to it. Um, and so there were a couple of things that were really interesting in that moment because I saw the handoff of this juvenile monkey to the man's granddaughter. And often in these villages, young girls will take care of them as pets. And it's almost a way of kind of learning how to take care of younger siblings as they get older. And then eventually it becomes the the family meal when it gets larger. He had just come back from a hunt. So I didn't see him actually kill the monkey, but you know, um, yeah. So what is it? What's it called? Curare? Is curare, this? yeah. Yeah. There's this paralytic agent known as tubocurarine that's found in this plant and other plants are mixed in this brew as well. And it's kind of like a little black tar that you dip the darts into. And what's amazing about it is when you hunt with something like that, you just barely have to prick the skin surface to get the effects. And so if you're hunting for, let's say dinner is, is a monkey and the rainforest canopy, it's a very quiet way of hunting. And this is a, you know, a method that indigenous peoples of the Amazon have used for millennia to acquire food through the use of this plant poison. It also, by the way, revolutionized surgery. If you go into the OR, you need to have your muscles in a relaxed state so that surgeons can do less damage when they're cutting in into your tissues. And so this really kind of was one of the kickstarters to the advances that we have today in, in modern anesthetics. A blowgun dart with curare on its tip. Now, that's quite an image, and it raises a very interesting point, pun very much intended, because it's a point of considerable danger, namely this. Sometimes the line between plant poison and plant medicine can be very, very thin. But the same might be said about precision dosing using Western medicines, manufactured maybe by chemists in some high-tech lab. One of Cassandra Quave's epiphanies in Peru, was her realization that traditional cultures often have, or once had, very sophisticated ways of using plants to do good rather than harm, and that Western interventions among indigenous peoples don't always make things better. In some cases, they make things worse. This intersection between Western and and traditional medicine has in some ways put local people at greater risk because Western medicine has been introduced, but it's vastly understocked. And so you might find some very, very basic medical kit ingredients in for a whole village in like a small medical kit, some Band-Aids, maybe some antiseptic, but they don't have access in many cases to the types of medicines they need. And unfortunately, because so much of this traditional knowledge has been displaced and lost as um, indigenous communities were, you know, pushed off of their native lands and pushed more and more towards these kind of main thoroughfares in the Amazon, which are the, the main rivers, they don't have that knowledge any longer of how to use many of these resources. When ancient wisdom is lost, if that ancient wisdom really was a wise kind of wisdom to begin with, not foolish wisdom... Well, that loss is potentially going to be considerable. And Cassandra had a first-hand chance to see and weigh such costs. One of the things that I got really interested in was this maternal and child health. And on a lot of my travels through the different communities, kids were really curious that I was always surrounded by a passel of kids, like just so many children. And one thing that I noticed is that they would frequently drink water directly from the river. This is not water that's being boiled. And they're also barefoot. And through speaking with local healthcare providers, um, these kind of government-installed sanitarios, it was very clear that childhood morbidity from respiratory infections, from malaria, and kind of just chronic issues because of high load of intestinal parasites was a major problem. But from Don Antonio, what I'd learned is there was actually a fig tree that grows in many of these villages that was historically used to treat these infections. But because locals don't really know the information about the dosing and the safety, because it can really cause very severe stomach cramping and be dangerous if given to a child at the wrong dose or at the wrong level of disease severity, people didn't use it anymore. And so these kids were suffering from really high parasite loads and a number of other secondary health issues because of that. And 
when I came to understand that, that was one of the things that really helped me make that final decision eventually to pursue ethnobotany instead of medicine. Because during this time in the Amazon, I was still very much in the process of applying to medical school. And it wasn't until I'd had that experience and was really faced with that and the final moment of decision that I that I changed course. Seeing the suffering, you mean? Yeah, yeah. And also seeing the potential, the potential of the plants that, that surround them, but yet aren't being studied by scientists and the knowledge of their use or their historic use was being lost to the detriment of local public health. Uh, so very often people in my shoes, with my experience, we we will be guilty of calling the kinds of practices you saw in Peru, medical practices. We we would say, we'd use the word primitive. I know that's condescending, but just play with me here for a bit. If the medicine that we know here in the first world is so advanced, uh, is it really that far advanced? Is it is it a world apart from the kinds of practices, the therapies? That it was you just saw a different there? form of healthcare in a way. I think some of the bigger differences that did become immediately evident to me were the ways that I viewed medicine versus the ways that healers like Don Antonio viewed medicine. I had a very, let's say, black and white understanding. Medicine was always about just surgery and pharmacology. So pills or cut. That was basically medicine. And I was very skeptical in some ways of plant-based medicines. I mean, I was a pre-medical student at Emory, a double major in biology and anthropology, taking courses like biochemistry and organic chemistry and all those fun things that you do when you're preparing to go to medical school. And so I had a very, I think, pragmatic understanding of, of what medicine was. But what really happened, I think, for me during that experience was seeing that medicine was actually about much more than that. And that, in fact, the origins of modern-day medicine, all of those pills that many ways we take for granted today, that many of those actually had their origin stories in plants in places like the Amazon. Those were kind of some of the eye-opening points for me. And you know, also just understanding the value of spirituality, the value of connectivity between people, between healers and patients, and also the value of connectivity between patients, healers, and nature which are aspects that are perhaps harder to quantify, but nevertheless important when it comes to the practice of medicine. With the benefit of hindsight, it's pretty easy to see how Cassandra Quave consolidated her focus intellectually in a way that was very consistent with her early passions. In South America, she learns from local medical practitioners. She gets to see the plight of children afflicted by parasites. She witnesses the spiritual facet of caregiving. Basically, she's weighing all the merits and demerits, comparatively, of traditional and, and modern medicine. And informing all of her experience was her own medical history of recurrent infection. So this was, I think it's safe to say, a pivotal season in her life. She says as much. Ethnobotany became a lens for her to view things through. All of her interests in medical research and medical practice. And apparently very little, maybe nothing of this, came up in her curriculum as a pre-med student. As you're about to hear, she is deeply concerned about current and past practices, modern and traditional, as they relate to microbial dangers to human health, dangers which are looming for all of us in the not very distant future. Will we be turning to plants for answers? The little girl who had a prosthetic device that rubbed against her leg stump causing recurrent infections, that is a deep-seated memory for Cassandra Quave. She's troubled by the already established fact that the antibiotics that saved her can lose their efficacy and that humans are becoming increasingly helpless in the face of dangerous bacteria. Remember how things were at the onset of the coronavirus pandemic? For a little while, medical science had very little help to offer. Antibiotic-resistant bacteria put us in a similar predicament. I, I really do get the urgency that Cassandra feels to explore new ways to confront what could be, in terms of suffering and death, a comparable disaster to coronavirus. Now, the name Cassandra comes from Greek myth, from Homer's Iliad, to be precise. The mythical Cassandra 
was blessed with a certain gift to be able to see the future, but the gift came conjoined with a curse that no one would believe her prophecies. The Cassandra we're getting to know is poignantly aware that her own words about the future might not be taken seriously by some. And maybe the best thing you can do in a situation like this, with a name like this, is just to laugh things off, at least a little bit. Yeah, exactly. I hope at least, I hope that our lessons learned from COVID will make people take a better look at the links between human health and planetary health. We cannot continue to destroy these ecosystems and um, continue to move further and further into areas where we have greater human wild animal interactions. Um, And we also need to save these resources because we haven't studied most of them. Not only are they important to the health of local people and important to global health, but there's just so much untapped potential there. We know that all the while that COVID has ravaged across the globe, antibiotic-resistant infections have continued to rise. So there's a term, it's called the post-antibiotic era. We've only had antibiotics for less than a century. Now, when I think about the history of medicine, I'm always thinking in centuries or millennia of looking at how humans have dealt with disease over long spans of time. When we had the introduction of antibiotics, it was the game changer in medicine. It's enabled surgeries and cancer therapy and childbirth and all these different procedures, it's enabled them to be performed in a much safer way. And as we lose those therapies, we're going to find that the whole of medicine is going to be impacted. This is not just the infectious disease doctor's issue. This is the OBGYN's issue, the pediatrician's issue, the cancer doctor's issue. It's all of our issues. If you go back a century and think about What could happen with a simple scrape in the garden that you could die from that infection? Or imagine having a urinary tract infection that you can't ever get rid of or an ear infection. And we already have problems with recurrent, you know, chronic urinary tract infections that many people suffer from today. So there's an urgency. The urgency is not only to push forward innovation and looking for new ways to treat and deal with these infections, but there's also an urgency to conserve both the habitats and the knowledge of how people have used those resources before those are lost forever as well. Right there, she's just laid out a big justification for ethnobotany, her discipline. The world has plants. We don't know enough about them, neither about their properties or their powers, their promise. But to say we is really vague and unfair. What if in some societies people are very conversant with certain botanical materials and what they can do? These are just exotic to me or to you. And if some of these plants, along with knowledge about these plants, is on the edge of disappearing, well, that explains the urgency. Let's get a little particular now to see how this all works. Any passionate botanist is going to have multiple stories, even just for a single plant. And I don't know how many plants Cassandra studied, well, for instance, in the Amazon. But the dragon's blood tree, now that could capture the imagination of a Tolkien fan like me. Dragon's blood is a really interesting botanical. It's known as sangre de drago or sangre de grado in the region. And it has this blood red color. You can also find it here in the U.S. in health food stores. And this is actually the red resin, kind of like a liquid sap that comes out of the trunk of the tree when you cut into it. Now, it's used locally to treat a number of different ailments, including insect bites and kind of skin infections. It can be rubbed onto the skin, but it's also used internally to treat diarrhea and even internal hemorrhaging um, following childbirth. Yeah, so... Don Antonio showed me not only how dragon's blood is used to treat skin infections and diarrhea in local traditional medicine, but also how to tell the difference between something that's like the actual plant material versus just a fake bottle of food coloring, which can be sold sometimes to tourists in the city. And so he cut into the tree with his machete and collected some of the resin and put it into the palm of my hand. And by rubbing it around um, vigorously in the palm of my hand, it turns from this bright kind of dark red color into a kind of a creamy gray color as the chemicals from the plant material mix in with the fats and oils of my skin. And he explained, that's how I know when I have the real deal. 
So you end up with this uh, resin from a dragon's blood tree. It's in your hand. And he's a local healer. And yet the end of this story really connects with the FDA at some point too. Yeah. So um, what's amazing is at the time he was telling me, you know, this is a really powerful medicine. And I thought at the time, well, that's interesting, you know, and kind of went on with things um, as we explored many different plants in his garden and in the forest. But many years later, a formulation of that latex was actually approved by the Food and Drug Administration as a botanical drug. So there are different pathways that you can get FDA approval through. And this is very different from a dietary herbal supplement. This is actually an FDA-approved drug that you take as an oral medication to treat um, certain forms of diarrhea. Do you see this kind of crossover frequently from uh, natural healing plants to sort of the FDA approval? You know, when it comes to complex mixtures from plants, not as much. The FDA-approved drug of dragon's blood is a mixture of compounds within the plant. And we only have two such approved drugs that are botanical drugs. One is from green tea to treat actually genital warts as a topical medication, which may surprise some of the listeners. And then we have this one for diarrhea. But there are many, many examples of of isolated compounds that were originally discovered in plants and then were developed later as pharmaceutical drugs. If you think about medications for pain, so you can think about morphine, if you think about medications um, for heart disease, medications for cancer, in particular like Taxol and uh, Vincristine for leukemia. I mean, the list goes on and on. So there's lots of examples of, yes, indeed, where we have pulled out a single compound to create an FDA-approved drug. And this one of dragon's blood is just a little bit different in that it's actually a mixture of compounds from the plant instead of a single compound. So something like Taxol would be from the yew tree, but the chemical is, is what, purified? Yeah, exactly. So instead of you know a, a mixture of compounds that you would find naturally in a plant, um, these are drugs that are developed where they take the single, think of it like almost like molecular blueprints, right? And they make that drug following the blueprints that the plant provided. So does somebody one day just say, huh, I'm looking for something to treat cancer with. I wonder if it's going to be in this yew tree. Well, actually, the National Institutes of Health and especially the National Cancer Institute had a huge program in the 1980s and 1990s where they scoured the globe looking for different natural resources, especially plants that were brought back that were in, and were created into extracts that they then used as part of their drug discovery platform to find new cancer drugs. Um, and that was actually a very successful venture. I wish we would do more of that with some of our other disease targets. Um, I think it's uh, that nature is an amazing place to look when you're searching for new drugs. Particular plants demand particular preparation. This isn't a realm for amateurs. Remember the fig plant used in Peru to treat intestinal parasites? It's not the whole plant blended into a smoothie. It's actually the milky latex that comes out of this very specific fig species. And when you drink it mixed with fruit juice because it's very bitter, you have really intensive intestinal cramping and expulsion of the intestines, including the parasites. So there's physical evidence that you're removing the parasites from the body. So it's not just a supposition of, oh, maybe this works. And it's not just eating a fruit. It's a very specific medical formulation that they create. Who figured out these kinds of treatments? I mean, anciently. And who were the first guinea pigs? You know, I'm just not so certain that anybody could have arrived at safe practices, healthy practices, without some sort of science behind it. Yeah, I mean, how do we discover anything in science? It starts by building a little bit of evidence at a time. And um, while maybe it's not done in the same way as a, you know, double-blinded controlled study of a clinical trial... And, you know, having that experience over time of, of observing people using something or treating patients with this and, and recording either through oral tradition or written tradition what the, what the outcomes of those treatments are, that's how we founded, you know, many different systems of traditional medicine. And remember, modern medicine is built on the backbones of traditional medicine. I think that there are indigenous scientists. There always have been. You look at Linnaeus. Linnaeus is well known for his system of binomial nomenclature, but there were actually plentiful examples of indigenous groups that have a system very similar to that, where they're using 
um, combinations of words to create a kind of binomial nomenclature to differentiate between species and often along, you know, pretty accurate um, phylogenetic lines. So, yeah, I think we have to stop giving all the credit to the old white men from Europe (laughs) and history. (laughs) That said... There are significant points of divergence between Western and traditional medicines. Traditional practitioners, for one thing, almost certainly have an upper hand when it comes to not just plants, but more holistic approaches to a patient's needs. I'm talking about ceremonial practices, ritual practices that go beyond what we in the West with our old white medical men from Europe have experienced. Willow trees, blackberry bushes, and a category of botanicals that Cassandra likes to call witchy plants. More to be said about these as we continue into the realm of, oh, some people call it body, mind, spirit. You're listening to Constant Wonder. Our ability as a species to survive in such a variety of habitats is in large part due to this knowledge of how to use the natural resources that are available to us in those habitats. And ethnobotany is a science of studying that knowledge and that intersection. Even the same species used across different cultures, that species is going to have a different local name. It's going to have different local uses or different local relevances. I mean, we've done a lot of work in the Balkans, and there are some different ethnic minority groups where we've compared that very concept of looking at how they use, you know, let's say, for example, a willow tree among the Guarani ethnic minority communities in the mountains along Albania and Kosovo. For the Guarani, willows are sacred, and you find them all in their villages. They use them as a kind of way of treating their animals and for their own health. And for the Albanians, they're just kind of, eh, it's just a willow tree. You know? So there's, there's a lot of, of levels of knowledge that's built into culture and how important different plants are in different cultures. The example that you raise here, I think, is just beautiful in terms of betrothal traditions. (laughs) Uh, The willow, it's not just that this is sacred. Um, How how does that work when 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 a a guy wants to propose uh, to a a, a girl? What happens with the willow? It's such a great tradition. It's so much better than just getting down on a knee and giving a girl a ring. Okay, they get together with all their guy friends and they go and they. They get a tree. They like bring a whole willow tree to her doorstep and put it outside of her home. And, um, you know, this is a night of drinking and singing and a lot of male bonding, right? So they leave this on their doorstep. And if she accepts, the tree is planted in her father's field. If she rejects him, the, she, the tree is chopped up and kind of burned on the doorstep. So it's a, it's a great tradition of this, of this kind of uh, ritual. And there, there are so many great examples of how plants are used in, in ceremonies like that or are revered in different ways. But like, I just love that particular story. Well, well, I have another example here that you've written up that has to do, and, and this is of all the things you've written, this passage, to me at least, uh, it exemplifies just how exotic something can seem to me that makes perfect sense to somebody in another culture. And I want you to comment on this. This is uh, actually uh, in Italy. Uh, it has to do with a group of emigrants from Albania who've made their way to Italy. The Arboresha people, I think, is how that's said. I'll just read some of this. This is just too good not to read. It has to do with something called the wind illness. The disease presents with small round inflammation of the skin, and the Arboresha believe that the patient contracts it when walking near places where someone has been murdered in the past. The healer's job is to first determine which malevolent spirit the patient encountered. This is important as the healing ceremony must use a weapon similar to that figured in the original crime, usually a knife, a pistol, or small axe. The weapon is then used to bless a glass of red wine that is mixed with gunpowder and then painted onto each of the inflammations in the form of a cross using a braided bundle of donkey tail hair." You know, that was from my cultural perspective, and this says more about me maybe than anything else. That's so over the top. 
it's difficult to sometimes explain, especially to kind of hardcore Western scientists that, you know, kind of see medicine as drug X hits target Y, right? I think there's value in documenting the details of a healing ceremony like that one, because you never know what what clues are going to emerge from such a description when you're actually trying to understand how a traditional medicine might work. In some cases, they're using different plants almost in like a symbolic form, but there is contact with the skin. In other cases, you know, within the field of dermatology, we know that there are plentiful examples of just self-resolving illnesses that after three cycles of three treatments, you know, you're looking at nine days later, is the illness going to be gone or not? You know, sometimes these just self-resolve. But we also know from recent scientific studies on traditions such as meditation and compassionate-based meditation that you can observe lowered levels of inflammatory cytokines or kind of these kind of inflammatory markers in the body following these types of meditative practices. So what's at play here? Is the the gunpowder and the red wine actually important to the scenario? I don't know. Is the braided bundle of donkey hair important? Who knows? It's probably just a brush in this. Or is it really the act of receiving that kind of healer patient care with a lot of, you know, having that kind of meditative experience. When you are subjected to such a healing ceremony, I can say from my own personal experiences of receiving such ceremonies that there is a sense of relaxation and there's a sense of calm. You know, we just don't know enough yet about how these types of practices influence our immune system or influence our our levels of inflammation and how that in turn might impact outcomes. You've referenced that you yourself have been the recipient of such treatments. I'm wondering if you could describe those to us. There's one, at least, Don Antonio, that you tell fairly early on Mm -hmm. in your story, and I believe also in in Italy. Could you describe those experiences from your perspective? Yeah, so with, with Don Antonio, he performed a healing bath ceremony, which basically involved a bowl of just water from the river and it had some crushed um, mint mint herbs. So not like peppermint, but other species that are found in the Amazon that are in that kind of mint family that have a little bit of that aroma. So his in his ceremony, it involved placement at the edge of the forest where you could hear the bird calls and the movement of animals in the overstory canopy. You had, so you had all those sensory elements of the forest and all the sounds and feels of the forest. You had the aroma of this this bowl of mint water that was poured over you. You had the meditative experience from his whistle, which is kind of a rhythmic whistle that was accompanied by movement of something called a shakapa bundle. It's basically a bundle of leaves from the from the grass family that make it kind of a whooshing sound. So if you can picture you're in this element in the forest and there's this constant whoosh, 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 almost like a heartbeat and the whistling, the the herb water and the intention that he has to make you feel better. Now, I don't know how to quantify that yet from a laboratory perspective. Maybe this could be something, you know, that could be studied in the future of like, look at what's happening to the immune response pre and post some sort of intervention like that. But I can see from my own personal experience, it was very calming and very relaxing. And a lot of my troubles at that time were my indecision that I was feeling and anxiety I was feeling over my my future path. And he made me feel better. And so, you know, it's it's important to note too that disabilities and challenges that I grew up with, you know, I'd never received as a child any sort of psychiatric care or counseling, which today I would think that that would be more of a standard of care. But when I was a child, it was not. And so this was in a way my first kind of psychological therapy I'd ever experienced in addition to like the sensory aspects. And with Zia Elena in Italy, she performed a ceremony on my leg. My stump was inflamed and and just not feeling well. And, you know, again, it was this, this, these symbolism, the repetition, 
the sounds, in her case, she was, you know, saying prayers in Italian in the Catholic tradition and touch. So the soft touches to the damaged site. And so it may be difficult to explain these these experiences from the perspective of biochemistry, but I can say from the perspective of psychological feeling, they were very helpful. I love witchy, magical, I'm doing quotation marks here, magical plants, because really when you think about what is a magical plant or a witchy plant in a culture, it usually, in many cases, is a plant that has some really interesting chemistry. Um, You can think about the example of the Madagascar periwinkle. That was very firmly put as a magical witch's plant. And we know today that the chemistry from that plant was actually useful in treating cancer. In fact, we have um, FDA-approved drugs from that plant that have healed countless patients of you know, childhood leukemia, um, vincristine. So uh, the yew tree is another example. You know, I love, I, I'm, a, I'm an unabashed tree hugger. Like if I see an ancient tree, I have to put my arms around it. It's just, there's just something about, I mean, cause it's like, when do you get to touch a being that's been on this planet for centuries, if not millennia in some cases. And again, another plant that has a very rich history in myth and lore and as we know today, is the source of another important anti-cancer drug, Taxol. So I'm not afraid of looking at witchy plants. I think witchy plants, that's often a clue that there's some interesting chemistry happening there. Well, uh, in your work with witchy plants and would-be witchy plants and near-witchy <laughs> plants, um, there is the Brazilian pepper tree. I grew up as a young boy loving to climb in our Southern California Brazilian pepper trees. And I remember so well walking across the hot summer sidewalk of concrete and smashing the little red pepper uh, corns and, and, and smelling that pungent aroma. Uh, I did not know until recently, number one, that they're actually edible. They can be used as a spice. But in your research, you've had a great interest in this plant and other plants like this. And I'm going to try to describe what you do. You take either the seed or the leaf or the bark and you extract the, the, the compounds from it. Uh, there's this thing called a rotary evaporator that I've seen on video before that happens where you, in some process, you uh, either concentrate or extract the, this material. And then you subject like a superbugs to it to see what happens. Did I get That's that a right? Great, yeah, you did. Absolutely. Yeah. You like the pepper trees, the Brazilian pepper trees. Well, it's, you know, again, it's it's one of those things that it's a it's a noxious weed in Florida. People hate it in Florida. It's originally from Brazil, as the name as the name kind of implies. But I'm also a fan of history, and I got interested in this plant. When you look back at historic records, going back to the 1600s in Brazil, there's evidence that it was used as poultices and to treat kind of ulcerated, non-healing wounds. And I get really. <laughs> I get really interested in oozing pussy wounds because that, for me, is a clue that it's an important clue. Here's a plant that people are using to treat an active infection. Is that a logical place to look for a potential new drug? Absolutely. And with the pepper tree, the story that it's told us, I mean, has just been fascinating because from the fruits, which are used as a kind of poultice to treat these skin infections, it doesn't actually kill the bacteria like a normal antibiotic. So some might look at that and say, well, this is not a useful remedy. This is an old wives' tale that has no value. But instead, I really try and push my research team to ask more questions. What else might this plant teach us? And in this case, we found that while it does not inhibit the growth like an antibiotic of the bacteria, what it does do is it changes the bacteria's behavior. It forces them to behave as if they're on their own as individual cells. And guess what? When they behave like they're alone rather than a group, they produce less toxins. And so here you have a scenario where you can have the cells alive, but they basically have been weakened. They're no longer able to deploy all of those weapons that destroy our tissue and create those big, pussy, non-healing wounds. You've kind of quarantined the individual cells so they can't work in concert with each other. Exactly, yeah. 
It's taking out their communication system. You know, I think there's so many stories like that where plants that have been used historically and continue to be used today, but which perhaps fail in some of our modern high-tech laboratory tests, I don't necessarily rule those out because I think we don't even have all the right questions today. And there are lots of other ways that we could ask questions of these plants. I mean, a lot of the antimicrobial standard test, it's usually just looking again at whether you can kill the bacteria or not. But what about what's happening to the immune system? What about what's happening to these other defense systems that the bacteria have? There's a much more holistic approach. You're thinking outside the usual box. Yeah. I mean, I like to tell my students there is no box. The moment you start to think within the context of a box, and the box in this case being that an antibiotic must be this, then you really are starting to limit yourself. I try and keep a very open yeah, mind yeah. and thinking, what can we learn from these traditions? Because, you know, from a healer's perspective, they're most concerned with healing the patient. Like, what's the overall final outcome? They're not concerned about, you know, concentrations to kill the bacteria. <laughs> they're not thinking about bacteria at all. They're thinking about, how do I heal my patient? As we got going in this episode with Dr. Cassandra Quay, we were in the Florida swamplands. She and her university students were hunting for plant specimens, specifically for blackberry plants. It just wouldn't be fair to leave you scratching your head, wondering why blackberries? What's so special, so important about this plant? It's funny because I'm hunting for blackberries in Florida, but my first interest in blackberries really began in Italy, of all places. While I was doing my graduate research on plants used to treat skin and soft tissue infections in southern Italy, one of the major remedies that locals would use were the leaves and roots of this blackberry bush to treat basically these kind of pustulant skin infections. They take the leaves, they crush it up, and they mix it with a kind of rancid pork fat. You're probably thinking, why the pork fat? I believe it has to do with facilitating the movement of the chemicals in the leaf across the skin barrier. But I got interested because some of the local men would say that they would make hair washes out of it to treat balding. They use the leaves for the skin infection and the roots to treat kind of hair loss and the fruits as an edible, a blackberry fruit that you would eat. And so I brought samples back of all of these. And when I looked at them in laboratory to see what types of antimicrobial properties they would have, I found that both the leaves and the roots had properties that basically stopped the way that bacteria stick to surfaces. And that was kind of interesting because um, bacteria are able to stick to surfaces through something known as a biofilm. If you've ever looked at a rock in a stream and seen that kind of slime layer over it, that's a mixture of microbes and they're able to withstand the movement of water on that rock. Or you can even think closer to home about your teeth. If you rub your tongue over your teeth in the morning, that kind of slimy, gritty feeling, that's a microbial biofilm that we then use a toothbrush to remove. So biofilms actually are important in the infection process and can make infections very difficult to treat. And that's why I got so interested in this blackberry extract because it contains compounds that stop the ability of those bacteria to stick to, to surfaces in the body. So when I'm brushing my teeth, I might not necessarily be killing bacteria. I'm just dislodging them. Exactly. So you can regularly brush your teeth and dislodge the bacteria from your teeth. But what do you do if you have bacteria that land on the metal in your hip replacement or in your knee replacement, right? Right now, if you get an infection in one of those implanted medical devices, um, the only solution is really aggressive antibiotic therapy, followed oftentimes by surgical removal of the device, more antibiotics, and the replacement with a new device. So it's a very um, intense kind of process to get rid of those biofilm-afflicted um, devices when they're, when they're in the body. I have blackberries in my backyard, if I remember correctly, botanical term for it, rubus. And I'm, I'm thinking there's all kinds mm -hmm. of varieties. Is this blackberry bush, whether it's in Italy or in the swamps of Florida, is it a cousin? Is it a very special kind of blackberry? That's a great question. We, we were asking that question, actually, in, in our research. was to We wanted to understand, you know, is there something special about this Italian blackberry versus others? And we've done some research looking at different species or kind of like different sisters and cousins within the Rubus genus and have found some similar chemistries in different, in different types of blackberries. And so that opens up the field to kind of explore um, 
you know, which of these species would be a best source of a, of a potential future therapy um, derived from the, from the blackberry. My own blackberry plants at home in the garden, do they hail from Italy? Uh, well, I don't know their point of origin, actually, but odds are against it because there are well over a thousand different species of this genus. Perhaps the thorniest issue facing an ethnobotanist hunting for compounds among the various brambles on the planet, it's not going to be the painful pricks you might get, maybe not even alligators or challenges to mobility, as in Cassandra's case, how to get there. Perhaps the perennial snag for a plant hunter is the complication of finding the proverbial needle in the haystack. For all of which, I think it's probably much less demoralizing, maybe even more exciting, thrilling, if you know that other humans, other people have beaten you to the haystack to look for them. Generations of lookers and learners, even anciently. And if anyone anywhere has compelling reasons, even deeply personal reasons, to convince you that a blackberry bush has more to offer than just a juicy something for dessert. Cassandra Quave is that person. Her memoir is titled The Plant Hunter, A Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicines. My thanks to Cassandra for a delightful visit. This episode of our podcast was produced by Eric Schultzka and Addie Mangum. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. BYU Radio.